Hi, and welcome to MentorCore. If you're new here, we're a community focused on helping people in the security, risk, and compliance fields grow their careers and leadership skills through mentoring. You can find more information about MentorCore at mentorcore.biz. I'm Dan Ayala, along with Lisa Beth Lentini Walker. Now, on to this week's discussion. Welcome to another MentorCore. This week, we are so excited because we have with us Jeff Peel, who is in charge of information security for Sullivan Cotter. He also teaches in his free time, but Jeff is so much more than that. So let's not wait one more second. Jeff, we're happy to have you here today. Um, I want to know all about how you got here, your background story, because I'm, I met you before in real life. One of the few people who's a guest who I met in real life. And I'm just fascinated by everything that you are and everything that you've done. So tell me about you. Uh, thanks, Lisa Beth and Daniel for having me on. Um, like uh, I am Jeff Peel. Uh, I serve as the information security officer for Sullivan Cotter. So I've been in the, the business, if you will, in IT um, for over 20 years, um, spent most of that, that, uh, that time uh, working for the Federal Reserve Bank. So um, moved here. So if we go back in kind of like the chronological um, order of my, my intro to technology, I, I would say it started with uh, kind of the introduction to IT by way of my my father. Uh, so moved here uh, in 87. So I'm a migrant or immigrant from, from West Africa, Liberia. Uh, I was 12 when I moved here um, and landed in Minnesota and all places um, and over Minnesota. So it's a small town in 87 and it's even smaller now. <laughs> um, uh, but went to, went to school in that area. Um, so if you imagine a 12 year old in you know, a small Minnesota town, um, kind of one of probably two in, in, uh, in class at the time, especially with an accent, uh, my ability to communicate with other students were a little tough and even with the, with the, uh, with the uh, teacher. Um, what I found that helped in that communication barrier was watching Winnie the Pooh um, cartoons. So uh, my stepmom at the time, she had all these cassettes, yeah, VHS and Betamax. <laughs> Betamax. The old days. <laughs> yeah, cassettes of, uh, of Winnie the Pooh. And I went through, if not all of them, a majority of those, um, those episodes of, of cartoons and then just kind of mimic or try to uh, sound like they like the characters did. At one point in time, I remember um, my library teacher asking me if I was from England because I had adopted the, the British kind of accent. Like, no, maybe overstudying too much. Um, <laughs> but throughout that time, and you know, in the eighties and nineties, um, saw my father kind of kind of evolve within that that technology field. Um, you know, went from having uh, a basement full of PC spare parts to, you know, different modems um, uh, that we had in the house. I think growing up as a teenager, uh, my brother and I, we had our own phone line. 
in the basement, which was kind of a novelty for 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 kids our age. That you had your own, we had our own phone line, and so there were actually three lines in the house: one for the basement, one for upstairs for for my mom, and then one running into the office for for my dad and his uh, and his modems and all the things that he had in there. And that was the intriguing part of it: how did it all work? How did you know? How do we communicate with other people? Um, in and around that time. Um, the other thing that that kind of uh, resonates with me is that he was the, and this didn't dawn on me till later in life, that he was on the bulletin board. Him and Al Gore, I guess, were on the bulletin board and the internet before it was, you know, what what became the, the popular destination of WWW. So, you know, looking back and even having conversations with him today, we, you know, he talks about how he posted um, items on the bulletin board for not only discussion, but for sale. Um, he did mention that he was dabbling in cryptocurrency way back when. And I was like, well, why didn't we, uh, you know, do something about this? We could be <laughs> in the penthouse somewhere. But um, needless to say, yeah. <laughs> that didn't work out so well <laughs> yeah um but yeah through that experience and and uh kind of learning from him kind of uh you know that spurred my interest in it um uh one year i remember for new year's having a conversation with someone in australia while we we're waiting for the ball to drop that you know uh, through 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 a chat that that person was had already celebrated the new year and that was one of the the things that um that really intrigued me so i went to school for business administration and minor in information systems for my undergrad um from there came back home started working and quickly found that need to you know kind of expand the reins a little bit so went back and got my master's degree in in, in it it general and um, as I was working with the Fed um, in the IT role and had the opportunity to move up in that organization as an information security officer, had the opportunity to work in the uh, wireless uh, arena. And then that really intrigued me uh, to, to what security is, could be, and how we can use that to ensure like the viability of an organization. Wow. Uh, I think from my perspective, that is foundation to um, my teaching style, right? So from a cybersecurity perspective, one of the first few days of class, we talk about the attack methodology of a malicious actor coming in and the defense strategy of a blue team trying to prevent against those attacks. I think that is the, 
equivalent to kind of understanding how it works, right? So if we go back to, you know, kind of breaking down the, the, the workstation and trying to put it back together, it's that same, in my opinion, it's that same methodology of how are they thinking um, the organization could be exploited, what areas of weak points uh, there could be for that malicious actor coming in. And then for the defenders and security practitioners, how are we protecting and are we protecting? So if they do this, are we in a position to either identify, detect, protect against that, or are we in a gap where we're not going to see that? And I think to, to me, that's where the, the, the area or opportunity of continuous learning resides for both practitioners and security leaders. And it transcends, it transcends, you know, either being on-prem or in the cloud. It, it's the same methodology. Um, and uh, fortunate for us, you know, there are a few variants where we've seen where it's not innately following that same path by way of supply chain, you know, vulnerabilities, but for the most part, um, it, it follows that same path. So, uh, you know, thinking about uh, the, the practitioners that don't have, you know, immediate experience can go to service providers like AWS where they can uh, download free subscriptions and then use that to get a better understanding of the environment, how to test it, how to set up configurations, how to do security controls within that environment and kind of flex their knowledge and even acquire um, additional training there uh, from an organization perspective that can work with a service provider and, 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 and leverage um, cyber ranges where they can take their security practitioners within the organization and actually put them in situations where they can experience real world um, cyber exercises, right? So they can either be in that um, be in that mindset of an attacker coming in, or they can be in the mindset of a protector of the organization. But in either case, you get that real world experience where you're, you know, leveraging either tools that are within the organization or best practices within the, the, the industry to, to um, kind of further knowledge and skill set in those areas. So those are, I think, opportunities for folks that are inquisitive about the, the industry of, of cybersecurity to be able to go in and either do it on their own or, or work with the organizations to help um, improve their skill set. Well, it, those are great resources, and we'll make sure that we mention them um, in some of our show notes, that there are resources available to individuals, um, some of which are even free. Yeah. Um, let me ask you um, something in a little bit different vein. In terms of the profession, what are you most excited about? I, I'm most, most excited about the interoperability and interconnectedness of information security as a priority into the development of tools and services. 
and products. So we've gone from being like the, the bad guy at the end of the, the bridge, kind of like troll at the end of the bridge that you have to pay to get to the other side to being a part of that, that bridge builder, right? So we want this to be a tried and true and sound foundation or architect architecture that folks are going to use and be confident and have trust that it's going to be there. Um, that's where, that's what's so exciting about information security because now it's part, it's becoming part of the, the, the industry ethos, if you will. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is uh is extremely exciting, and you know, one end, you know, I'm I'm more confident now that I can have. I'm not to the point where I can get my my coffee maker and my toaster to be on the same network, but you know, I I, I like to turn the temperature in the house up and down and, and lock the doors and stuff like that. That's still that's still a uh, uh, a feature that I enjoy. <laughs> if they want to see me, they got me. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I know that you work with um, young people and, and people who are coming back for second um, uh, careers and everything like that. Um, for people who are not in information security, what would you be telling them right now? Should they be thinking about certain things? I mean, other than patching the cameras, which we just talked about, but what are your key tips, particularly for students or people who are interested in entering the profession? Uh, the one thing that I tell students is that this field, unless we have a catastrophic event that knocks us back to the caveman days, we are in an era where security is going to be integral to everything that we do. So um, if not as a profession, certainly as an avenue of understanding, we have to understand what it means to secure, um, secure an environment. Or if you're a developer, what does it mean to secure that application? If you're a designer, especially if you're going to be designing a component or a product that is going to be interested in somebody else's hand, which inevitably will have some electronic components to it, what does that mean? So um, my advice to students have always been and continue to be that security is the path forward. Um, if it's not your primary profession, it has to be something that you understand as part of your day-to-day -day usage. Great advice. Um, so let's take a little bit different tack. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is the level of burnout within information security and, and many of these guardian professions, whether it's the lawyers, the um, auditors, you know, the fraud <laughs> investigators, etc. There is a heck of a lot of burnout for anyone who's in what it would be considered kind of a corporate support role <laughs> where you're not making the big bucks because you're having sales fly out the door. Um, and you oftentimes are responsible for things like controls, which are just sometimes no fun. Um, so how do you think about well-being in your life and making sure that your teams that you work with are working at their best? 
Yeah, so I, I'm one of, um, I like uh, example of leadership by practice and not just by, by words. So I, I encourage folks to take time off. Um, as I, you know, kind of um, interact with my team and kind of have an understanding of what our daily workload is, I help, you know, my, my accountability responsibility is to help them prioritize what's the most important thing that we need to be working on. And some of those things I take off the plate, deprioritize so they can have some flexibility in, in other things that they want to do. Uh, one of the things that I took away from from 2020 as we kind of migrated away from the workplace is that folks stop taking time for themselves, right? They stop stopping um, where, you know, they're waking up, you know, at eight o'clock and on right away. And they're working through the night as they would have if they were up at eight, drove in and then at the desk, and then left at five and then got home and then worked a little bit at seven or eight o'clock at night. It was like a constant um, kind of um, uh, output from, from our employees. So that takeaway was ensuring that people could and they um, had the flexibility and were empowered to um, take time away. And that wasn't a bad thing. So your time away could be in the middle of the day and that's fine. Um, your time away, if you want it, could be at the end of the day where you're not gonna log back in at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. You're just gonna let it rest until the next morning. Um, and that's fine. <clears throat> so I try to exemplify that those behaviors in, in what I do, I'll communicate with the team, or I'm gonna be off from you know, 12 to four at X, Y, and Z to do, and I'll be back on later, or I'm taking a day off you know, because I have something else to do and, and be able to um, allow people to have that flexibility. Um, so um, that's one area. And the other one is just being collaborative and, and open communication and being kind of empathetic to what's happening in, in folks' lives. You just don't know anymore what's, um, you know, what's really bothering someone. Well, we try to keep the camera on, but not all the time. You know, so someone could be really struggling and you won't have that interpersonal connection um, as we did in the office place. Yeah, I think those boundaries are really important, especially when we have this kind of persistent bleed of what is work versus what is home versus what is something else, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something I, you know, we've, we've talked to people who have specifically changed their socks to make sure that they knew when one day was ending and the other was beginning. Um, but I think that's so important and so easy to forget, um, especially when we're talking about hybrid or remote, fully remote yeah. environments. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
Yeah, and it goes to uh, Lisa Betts' um, comment or, or point on setting those boundaries, right? So if I, if I explicitly say I'm not available, that means that, hey, for this period of time, that's his time, we need to respect that. And if, if that isn't known, to me, it's my time, but that hasn't been communicated. And then I'm getting pings from other people about you know, what's priority to them. It becomes kind of a, a point of, um, you know, uh, a point where you can have uh, discourse within the, the, the team, right? So now I told you, but you didn't really tell us you out. You, you just wasn't around. So I figured you had your phone and had this and that, and I can send something to you. So setting those, those boundaries and making sure that people feel comfortable that when they do say, hey, I'm out, that we respect that, that, you know, that individual is out, life is still going to go on, nobody's dead, dying, or about to die in our, in our organization, so we can move forward until, until they're back in the pocket again and we can re-engage. I love this because we often talk about paper programs, um, whether it's in security or it's in compliance. We know that paper programs don't work from an operational perspective, and paper programs don't work for well being either. <laughs> so it's not the check the box activity that's going to make you uh, operate at your best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, imagine that the, the water cooler discussions that we had in the office, right? Yeah. It, we weren't engaged in any, you know, kind of actual work, but there was some ideation happening there, right? Maybe there was a spark of an idea where you're, you're talking with a colleague or, or even a, a manager, a senior officer or whatever. And that becomes a place for that idea to kind of germinate, right? We don't have that now. In order for that to happen, you have to you know, set up a meeting, then it becomes formal, then you have to look presentable, then you have to have your thoughts in order and all that stuff. So folks have to find a different way to kind of, um, uh, mature some of those ideas. And to your point, Dan, it, it's just disconnecting, laying down, or disconnecting and moving to a different part of the house and focusing not on the work, but the idea and people being enabled to do that. You know, being trusted that you don't have to be green from eight o'clock to five o'clock. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're not, yeah, yeah. And, and, and those are the, I think, those are the things that, that are missing from the remote work, but we need to um, empower our employees to do that for themselves. It, it's gonna take a different fashion or it'll take a different format, but um, that empowerment for you to think without being green it is, is, I think, imperative as we move forward in this uh, remote work environment.
Well, it, it, it's, it's that, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to work in a couple of uh, industries where, where lives aren't immediately at stake. Um, you know, it could be different if I was, you know, the CISO for a healthcare organization or, you know, some big uh, thing where people really, uh, their, their lives really depended on it. But in, in my career path, the, the one um, advice that kind of has stuck has been that nobody's dead, dying, or about to die. So no decision you make now in haste is going to benefit uh, you as an individual or collectively your whole group if it's just made in haste. So uh, being able to pause and just reflect on the time and the situation and then make informed decision. So that is kind of the... the the, the, the basis of why I teach understanding the attack methodology um, to students, both from an attacker and from a defender perspective, because it gives you that time to understand at what point on this timeline am I having this issue? Is it at the reconnaissance side or is it at the exploitation side? Or is it at the, the point where we have data exfiltration? And, each point we have opportunities to mitigate the risk and stop the bleeding. So if we just make a hasty decision once something arises that we aren't making an informed decision, um, it kind of doesn't help the situation more often than not. It's a pleasure and I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of, uh, of this and I hope to be invited back and I'd love to come back and chat.